Good morning, everyone. Isn't it great to sing those songs? Boy, don't they just do something to your heart and your spirit and your soul? It's great. I love Christmas time. It's a great time of year. So we celebrate and we celebrate the reason for the season, which is Jesus Christ, right? All the other trappings are nice. They're fun. They bring us together and allow us to demonstrate our love for each other. But it's the meaning of the season. It's Jesus that really makes the Christmas season what it is. At least that's what it should be. Well, we've been in a little Christmas mini-series here at the bridge called Christmas Tidbits. Now, again, I looked up the word tidbit, and it means a choice morsel or a choice piece of information. So what we're doing this Christmas, since we all really know the Christmas story, is we're trying to take little aspects of Christmas and seek those tidbits, those choice morsels of food, something we can dine on, those choice morsels of information that often when we celebrate Christmas, even when we really do keep Jesus in Christmas, that we never stop and consider, that never come to our attention. For example, week one, we looked at the road to Christmas, and we looked at the genealogies in Matthew of Jesus, uh, of his family tree. And you know, that's one of those places in the Bible, when we start reading the Bible, we just kind of gloss over that. We go, I'm not reading all those names. But we found out how important those names are. Those names, number one, legitimize Jesus as the Messiah, as the rightful heir to the throne of David. But also we saw by just examining the first, I don't know, eight or nine names in that genealogy, we saw, although they were great Bible characters like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these great Bible characters, we saw how flawed they were as human beings. I mean, they were like us. They had a lot of dysfunctional behaviors and characteristics. And we we're reminded that that's exactly the kind of God, a person God uses for his work. He could have chosen anybody he wanted to. He could chose the, the rich and the celebrities and all that. But God chooses people like you and me to do his work. And, and remember, Jesus is coming back. There's another road to Christmas sequel, and that road will be heralded by folks who are like us, not perfect, live these crazy lives, have some dysfunctions to us, but that's exactly who God uses to bring glory to his name. So if you ever sometimes feel that, you know, I'm just nobody, and I don't have anything to offer the Lord, oh, don't think that way. You're exactly who God made you. God has a plan for your life, and it's an important part of his plan for the kingdom. Last week, we looked at the chaos of Christmas. And we, we talk about, this is a celebration. There's a lot of chaos in our life, but it's material chaos, isn't it? But we looked at the fact that although we look back at Christmas time, and you know, we put the little, uh, you know, auras over uh, the, the heads of Mary and Joseph and the baby, and we have the cattle at the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and all that. I mean, the real first Christmas was anything but peaceful for the people who really experienced it. And so we looked at last week of how, how Christmas was chaotic for Zechariah, the priest and Elizabeth, who were the first uh, uh, characters of Christmas. And we looked at Mary and Joseph. We looked at the Magi. We looked at Herod. We looked at the people of, of Jerusalem and Judea. And we saw how their lives were filled with chaos because of Christmas and that event. 
And we're reminded that God periodically interrupts our life. Mary and Joseph, they were sailing along. Everything was beautiful in their life. They were planning to get married and, and to have a family together and a house together. And then all of a sudden, angels start appearing to them. And their whole life is turned upside down. And, you know, God still does that periodically. He still invades our lives. And we remember then that when that happens to us, we need to respond like these amazing Christmas characters did. Number one, don't get rattled. Peter said, don't think it's strange when trials come into our life. So don't get rattled. Number two, we looked at seek God's perspective. Try to see what God's doing around us and who he might be doing it with. Because sometimes when God invades our lives with chaotic circumstances, it's not really about us. It's about a work that he's trying to do in the life of somebody else or in the lives of other people. And so instead of us getting discouraged and, and that and focusing in on that challenge right in front of us, open our eyes, start swiveling the head and looking around for who God might need us to reach out to, who, who might need Jesus with some flesh on it, and we might represent that. Then we said, you know, trust God's purpose. God always acts out of love. And we just, when chaos invades our life, we just need to, to trust that God has a purpose for it all and just wait for him to reveal that purpose, or sometimes he never reveals that purpose, then we have to embrace his promise that if we will endure suffering in this world, then we will also be glorified with Jesus in heaven. Now today, I want to look at one more Christmas tidbit, and that's the timing of Christmas. The timing of Christmas. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did God finally send Messiah, Jesus, into our world when he did? Why did he send Jesus at that particular time? I mean, think about it. The promise of Messiah coming goes all the way back to the fall of mankind, of Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, God is meriting out Punishment for, for to Adam and to Eve, and, and in this case, to the serpent who beguiled them. And it says in Genesis 3, 14, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Well, we certainly know that's come true because we know what a snake does. A snake crawls on its belly, and, and there are not a whole lot of people who love snakes, Right? But he goes on to say, though, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, some just think, well, that's the natural relationship between humanity and a snake. We don't like snakes. We want to stomp them out and kill them. And snakes are biting at our heels. But, but there's much more to what's going on here. See, God's, again, using this idea of the offspring of woman. And God is going far beyond just the, the, the relationship between snakes and humans. He's going to the relationship between himself and Satan. And what he's saying here is, Satan, you're going to cause a lot of problems to humanity. Because Adam and Eve, because you were successful in, in, in tempting them to sin, sin has come into the world, and that's not going to be a good thing for humanity. It's going to bring a lot of misery to humanity. You're going to be nipping at humanity's heels all the time. He said, but I'm going to send 
through the offspring of woman, one who's going to crush your head. See, it goes far beyond the relationship between snakes and humans. God is prophesying here that he has a plan for sin and that he will send through woman, and it's important again that he emphasizes through women because later on in Isaiah 7, 14, it says, here's how you're going to know who Messiah is. He'll be born of a virgin. And so this is the first promise by God that he's going to send Messiah into the world. But think about it. Thousands and thousands of years pass before he finally sends Jesus into the world. Thousands of years. Now, all along the way, he gives another little snapshot here, another little snapshot there, a little prophecy here, a little prophecy there. But it's thousands of years. And so why then did God finally send Messiah into the world when he did? Why then? Why not before? Why not later? Why then? Well, Galatians 4.4 gives us a hint when it says this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, way back in Genesis chapter 3, as he prophesied, born under the law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of son. So he said, when the time had fully come. Now, if we look at the time that Jesus came into the world, we can deduce some amazing things. We can really see how perfect God's timing was. For example, it was the perfect historical time for Messiah to come into the world. Luke chapter two, verse one through three, we read this pretty much every Christmas. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. Now that's a very familiar Christmas passage. We, we, we recite it, we, we put it into our pageants, we do it, everything. It says, when Caesar Augustus, now think about this, Caesar Augustus was probably of the Roman emperors, the greatest of all the Roman emperors. And history kind of says that about him. He was the first emperor to rule peaceably in a hundred years. He, all the conquering was done. All the battles were won. And he ruled the empire in peace. Now, there were insurrections here and there and isolated pockets, but in all, the world was at peace at this time. It was the first time in a hundred years. He was the first emperor to order a census of the entire Roman Empire. He was the first guy to do that because he was a different kind of emperor. He wasn't a warrior emperor. He was an administrator emperor. He is the one who catapulted Rome to its true cultural and intellectual greatness. Now, this is huge. Because remember, it's the census that causes Mary and Joseph, who lived in the city of what? Nazareth, to have to go to Bethlehem, where the prophet Micah had prophesied Messiah would be born, 
at the end of her pregnancy. It was this census, the first time it had been done in the Roman Empire. Gee, what a coincidence that was, right? That caused Mary and Joseph to have to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem where the Messiah was born as was prophesied by the prophet Micah. Also, Rome was the first nation, and this was the first historical time that crucifixion was used in precisely the manner necessary to fulfill the prophecies about Messiah, about Jesus. Crucifixion had been around for a long time, but not in the way that it was practiced by the Romans. Crucifixion prior to the Romans was just an impaling of a person, taking a sharp wooden pole and driving it up through their lower extremities, up through their mouth. I mean, terrible as that is, that caused a person to die quickly, though the Romans perfected it and made it a much more heinous death and much more suffering death. But in order to fulfill the prophecies of Psalm 22 and other things about how his bones would be out of joint but not broken and, and how he would struggle for breath and, and, and the whole thing about his, his clothes being uh, cast lots for and gambled for and all that. I mean, all this stuff comes about because Rome, at this point in history, is doing exactly what has to be done in order to fulfill all those prophecies. So it was the perfect historic time. It was also the perfect cultural time. Alexander the Great, who was Greek, of course, was the first, the first warrior king to conquer the known world. Remember, he did it at a very early age, and after he'd conquered the world, history tells us, whether it's accurate or not, that he, he laid on his bed and cried because there was no one else to conquer. But he had conquered the known world. He was the first to do it. He established throughout the world Greek as the universal language. <laughs> like today, kind of, the universal language is English for business and, and for culture. Well, at that time, even more so than English is today, Greek became the universal language. Everyone learned Greek, everyone wrote in Greek, everyone talked in Greek. Now, the Romans were so impressed with Greek culture, Greek philosophy, and just everything about the, the Greek society, that they embraced all the Greek cultures and philosophies and, any, many, and even many of the Greek gods, but also they kept Greek as the universal language instead of Latin, their own language. The New Testament, see, is written in Greek even though Aramaic was spoke, the spoken language of Jesus' day. So what's the big deal that the New Testament was written in Greek? What's the big deal that Greek was the universal language? Well, that meant that the gospel could be spread quickly through all the world in a language that was common among all peoples of the world. It, they didn't need a thousand different language translations like we do today because everyone could read Greek. Anyone who was educated could read Greek. And so the gospel, this is one of the reasons why the gospel was able to just spread through the world like wildfire. 
Because all the letters written in Greek by, by the disciples and by the apostles and by the New Testament writers could readily be read by people around the world. It was the perfect cultural time. It was the perfect philosophic time. During this exact time, History records there was this widespread international expectation that some great king, a great deliverer, was going to come into the world. Suetonius is a Roman historian that we've talked about several times in different studies here at the bridge. But Suetonius says this, there had spread over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at this time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Now think about this. This is a Roman historian. Rome is the imperial power. And yet this Roman historian is saying this. During this time, this exact time, there was a widespread belief around the world that some great leader was not only coming to the world, but was coming out of Judea, this little obscure, isolated part of the world. Tacitus, his counterpart, another Roman historian, picks up on it too and says, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow so powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a what? A universal empire. Again, the Romans, they're, they're looking. They're looking in, in this obscure region of the Middle East, saying it was purported, it was posited that, that some amazing great leader was going to come into the world from that area. Josephus, who was the leading Jewish historian at the time, reported in his Jewish wars that at about the time of Jesus' birth, the Jews believed that one from their country would soon become ruler of the habitable, habitable earth. I mean, think about it. There was this growing international feeling that from somewhere, a great and unprecedented leader was about to come into the world. And that's exactly true. That's exactly what happened. But they all missed it. And why did they miss it? Because they weren't looking for a little baby. They were looking for a man. They were looking for an alpha male. They were looking for a warrior king. They were looking for someone who was mighty. Someone who was eloquent of speech. Someone who was charismatic. And the whole world would buy in to their leadership. The exact person they were anticipating did come, but they weren't looking for the way he would come. It was the perfect philosophic time. It was the perfect prophetic time. The Bible is this amazingly accurate prophetic book. Now understand, in the Old Testament, there are a number of prophecies about the coming of Messiah and the death of Messiah. When considering all these prophecies, and I've taught you this before, about Christ, the probability of all of these prophecies being fulfilled in the lifetime of one individual 
is 10 to the 99th power. Now, what does 10 to the 99th power mean? Take 10 and add 99 zeros. And if you can decipher what number that is, that's what the odds were that one human being in one lifetime could possibly fulfill all of those prophecies. Things like being born of a virgin. Things like being born in Bethlehem, although his parents lived in Nazareth. Things like that, 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 that later on he would be numbered among thieves and that they would cast lots for his garments. And, I mean, over and over and over again, all these prophecies. And they all came at this perfect time. All of them could be fulfilled. So Galatians said, when the time had fully come, and it had come, it was the perfect historic time. It was the, the perfect cultural time. It was perfect in every way. So what's our Christmas tidbit from all this this morning? What do we take home from this? All right, number one, God is always on time and on target. He's always on time. He's always on target. Now that's so important because so often we're waiting for God to do something in our lives. And we've been praying about it and we've been diligent about it and we've been waiting and and, and we, we, we start thinking, you know, where is God? Why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't God intervening? Why haven't I seen or heard anything from God? And we tend to think, oh, well, I guess God's not into me. I guess God's not hearing my prayer. I guess God's, no. Listen, God is always on time and on target. He's always working his plan. In the case of the Messiah, He worked it over thousands and thousands of years. But during those thousands and thousands of years, he he was like a master chess player who was positioning the chess pieces to be in the exact position to bring about a checkmate. And understand, he is doing that again today in preparation for sending Jesus back the second time. And he's manipulating history, and he's manipulating culture, and he's manipulating philosophy, and he's manipulating politics. He's he's manipulating it all. And at the full time, when the time is full, he will send Jesus again. But also in your life, when the time fully comes... For him to reveal an answer to your prayer, for him to reveal a purpose for the the circumstances that you're challenged with now, when the time fully comes, when he's got it all together and all set up, he'll reveal it to us. God always keeps his promise. Thousands and thousands of years before, as soon as humanity fell into sin, as soon as we, as a race, alienated ourselves from God, as soon as we brought the eternal consequence of separation from God upon ourselves, from that moment, God had a plan. God promised through the offspring of woman, I'm going to send one that's going to crush your head, Satan. Yeah, you're going to nip at his heels and you'll have your shot at him. But in the end, he will destroy you. 
God said, I'm sending that person into the world through the offspring of woman. Thousands of years, but he kept his promise. God is still keeping his promises. God cannot do anything but keep his promises. And we need to take comfort this Christmas season, especially those of you, as we talked about last week, who this Christmas is filled with a lot of chaos in your life. We, we, need, we need to be comforted that God always keeps his promise. Promises that like start and echo throughout Scripture that started in the second book of, of the Bible in Deuteronomy or, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book. The Lord himself, Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. Look what it says. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Now, I know when chaotic times befall us, it's so easy to panic. It's so easy to become discouraged. It's so easy to think that, that God has abandoned us. But he's not. And scripture over and over again, starting way back in the Old Testament, tells us, God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm always there. Even if you don't see me, even if you don't feel my presence, I'm there. And I hope that we'll all embrace that this morning. Wherever you're at in life, God is too. He knows about it. He's there. He doesn't want you to be discouraged. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, but those who hope, if you have a King James Bible, it says, but those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not, not, not faint. What does it say? It says that if we'll wait on the Lord, he'll renew our strength. He'll show us that he was always there. He'll show us that he never forsook us. He will show us that he has a plan and a purpose and a perspective. And in the end, when we see what God does and when we see how God manipulates the circumstances of our life and brings the outcome he does, we're going to soar like eagles. We're not going to be down here like rats in the gutter. We're going to be up here in the clouds. We're going to soar. We're going to praise him. And you know that because it's already happened in your life at some time. And it'll happen again. God always keeps his promises. And finally, God always delivers more than we expect. Even had Suetonius and Tacitus and Josephus and all the other philosophers of the world, even had they got it right and God had sent a great leader into the world, and a great leader did come into the world, they had no idea what that leader would be capable of. They would have no idea who that leader would be. God sent a little baby. They were looking for a warrior. But in that little baby was more eternal impact, was more hope than any earthly king could ever provide any group of people. In that little baby that came into the world was not just a great teacher. Oh, Jesus was a great teacher. And all world religions will acknowledge that, that Jesus was a great teacher. A moral leader. Jesus was a great moral leader. 
You can even read books today that talk about the leadership principles of Jesus. But he's so much more than that. In that little baby that came into the world was the only path to the forgiveness of sin. And not only did that baby come into this world to teach us a better way to live and to teach us to love each other, all those things he taught us, he delivered so much more. He delivered eternal life. Jesus said in six, uh, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. Basically, Jesus, just before this, has been talking about material things, clothes and food and houses and all the stuff that we get so wrapped up, especially during Christmas season with all the material side of Christmas. Jesus said, listen, he said, just seek God and seek God's righteousness and God will deliver more than you could ever provide for yourself. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared those for those who love him. We, we just can't get it because it's true. God is preparing so much for us. If we could just really get just a glimpse of it, if we could just accurately portray just a fraction of it, we would knock ourselves out serving him. We would knock ourselves out giving to him for what is coming to us, see? Because we say, oh, I trust that Christ is my savior. I'm going to heaven. And that's, that's a very comforting thought, isn't it? And all I know in heaven, there's streets of gold and gates of pearl. Oh, that's, we, we don't even start to get it. We are so under anticipating what the life to come is going to be that we get paralyzed into ineffectiveness often in our lives here, in our preparation for what is to come. But even though that's true, and I promise you when I get to heaven, I'm gonna wish I had done so much more for the Lord. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. But even though that's true, and even though I should do more for the Lord, even though I've got the opportunity to do more for the Lord, still, God is gonna deliver to me more than I anticipate. He always delivers more than we expect. Even in your life circumstance, not only is he gonna work it out, he's gonna work it out in a way you would have never thought of. In a way, you sit back and go, I, I just can't believe it. I hear it all the time. I hear your stories. You come to me and you say, Pastor, I gotta tell you the story. It, it, hardly a week goes by that somebody here at the bridge doesn't come back and corner me and say, I gotta tell you what God just did in my life. And it was, I guarantee, more than they ever expected him to do. So the timing of Christmas, why did God send Jesus when he did? The timing of Christmas, it was perfect. It was the perfect time. And we should not be surprised by that. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of son. Now, understanding that what the time, when the time had fully come, what that all entails is one thing. 
It was perfect historically. It was perfect culturally. It was perfect philosophically. It was perfect prophetically. It was all perfect timing. But more important is the reason that he finally sent Messiah. And that is so that we might receive the full rights of sons. See, John 1.12 says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of who? God, born of God. And that's why God sent Jesus at the perfect time that we might receive the rights, not just of religious followers, not just the rights of religious fanatics or even people dedicated to a cause, but that we might receive the full rights of sons, the full rights. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us how we get those rights. It says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is seemingly a little thing. You, you, you mean that if I just exercise faith, God forgives every sin I've ever done? Yeah. You, you, you mean it, if I just exercise faith, God promises me eternal life with him? Yes. You mean if I, I'm... If I just put my faith in Jesus, I'm adopted into God's family and I have the full rights of, of family membership? Yep. In fact, there's nothing you can do for that. That's, what's the power of this verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9? It says, it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. See, Christmas, we give gifts. And the reason we give gifts is in remembrance, in recognition of the fact that Christmas is about God's gift to humanity, Jesus Christ. And so the only way we can receive that gift is through faith. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty tasty morsel of food. God is working still in the world. God's now working on getting Jesus here the second time. And when the time fully comes, when everything is right in place, and I got to tell you, I don't know what else has to happen. I'm going to talk to you about it the first of the year. But God is manipulating culture and God is manipulating society and history and politics and economics and everything. He's manipulating it all so that Jesus comes back. That's a reality. The million dollar question this Christmas is, are you ready for him to come back? Are you ready? That involves two considerations. Number one, have you received the gift of Christmas? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If not, God brought you here to give you that opportunity. You're going to have it in just a moment.
Number two, you've done number one. And so number two then is, do we understand that every day of our life is an opportunity to play our role as a son or daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Every day is our opportunity to prepare for our eternal experience. It's so easy in this life to get distracted. It's so easy to get pulled away by this, by, by our vocations, by our, our social commitments, by our financial obligations. It's so easy for us to keep our eyes off the prize. And so if that's happened to you as a believer, let me encourage you this morning to just spend a moment with Jesus and say, you know what? I've got my eyes off the prize. I've been consumed with so many things. But God, you will keep your promises. You will take care of things on your time. I'm going to give all this back to you. And I just want to give you glory to everywhere I can, to everyone I can. Let's bow our heads. This morning, if you're here and you, you're not sure what's going to happen to you when this life is over. You're not sure where you're going to spend eternity. Well, Christmas is all about allowing you to be sure about that. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. Have you ever received that gift? If not, and right now, every head's bowed, no one's looking around. If you've never received that gift, and right now, the presence of the Spirit of God is, is speaking to you. Through a soft voice, just saying, this is why I brought you here. This is what you need. I want to give you the gift of Christmas. I want you to receive me as your Savior. No one looking around. Just so I know if there's anyone who God is dealing with in that way. And I won't embarrass you in any way. Would you just slip up your hand and say, Pastor Pete, that's me. That's me. Anyone? Father, from the testimony here today, we've all trusted you as our Savior. And that's not surprising, Lord. Being that it's so many folks who have not done it are so busy with the Christmas season that they might not take time to come to church. So, Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here this morning, especially those who are experiencing a chaotic Christmas time. And there's some real challenge in their life. And God, I pray that right now your spirit will minister to their spirit and remind them that you're always on time, you're always on target, that God, you haven't forgotten them. And Lord, you're manipulating circumstances and people to bring a resolve to the issue that they're challenged with. And, and when the time fully comes, you'll, you'll, you'll do it, you'll reveal it. Help them to remember that you always keep your promises. And promise number one is you'll never forsake us. You'll never leave us. And so, Lord, even if we don't feel your presence, God, let us claim that spiritual truth that's echoed over and over again throughout Scripture. And finally, Lord, help us understand that when you do act, it's going to blow us away. 
because you always deliver so much more than we expect. So for now, let us do what Scripture says. Let us wait upon the Lord so that we can renew our strength, so that we can soar as eagles, so that we can run and not be weary and not faint. Thank you, Lord. Love us. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.